0: Good evening. Welcome, everyone, to our evening worship service. We'll begin with our call to worship. So if I invite you all to stand for our call to worship from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 10 through 11. Hear God's word. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Would you pray with me? Lord, you are the cause of worship. You have called us here to worship you, and you will bring that worship about through your Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you, again, this evening would be good to us, that you would encourage us, that you would cause praise to sprout up in each of our lives as we leave this place, that we would be a testimony to you, to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ this week in our families, at our workplaces, Um, wherever we might be. Lord, we ask that you would do that. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll sing our first hymn together, and it is Jesus, Thy Blood and Righteousness, hymn 520. Let's sing hymn 520 together. would like, you can turn to our Old Testament reading this evening, which is from Micah 6, verses 6 through 8. This passage answers the question, what are we to do as followers of God, as God's people? What does he call us to do? And as we read this, we'll see, of course, how in fact um, God in his goodness is causing us To live in these ways, but also we are aware of those ways in which we fall short. And so it's a good passage to remind ourselves what God is calling us to and how we ought to come into his presence with faith and repentance and expecting his forgiveness and pardon and new life. So Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That leads us into our time of corporate confession of sin. As God has told us in his word that we are to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God, that means we are to walk in a spirit of repentance, faith, trust, knowing that we are, in fact, a sinful people who are flawed human beings, but who know and are united to a gracious and loving God. Our corporate confession of sin is printed in the bulletin, and we'll read this together as a way of praying together, and then we'll have a time of silent prayer together where we can confess our sin and use this time to pray however we would like. So let's read this prayer together. O most merciful God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who pardons all such as truly repent and turn to you. We humbly confess our sins and ask for your mercy. We have not loved you with a pure heart, neither have we loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have not done justly, nor loved mercy, nor walked humbly with you, our God. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out our iniquity. Create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. Cast us not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from us. Restore unto us the joy of your salvation, and uphold us with your spirit. Amen. We'll take a few moments now to pray silently. Father, we are all in need of a clean heart, and that is only through you that we can have that. We pray that you would renew a right spirit within us, and you promise to do just that according to your loving kindness and to the multitude of your tender mercies. You forgive all of our sins. And we can walk with a clear conscience and we can be humbled. So Lord, we pray that as we confess our sins before, as we think of those areas in which we know we have not walked humbly or loved kindness, whatever it might be, Lord, we pray that you would remind us of your great grace and your forgiveness, not just to forgive us our sin, but to give us a new heart to continue to walk humbly before you so that we can love others as you have taught us to and as you have shown us. Lord, as we have this time of prayer, we again pray for those areas of the country and of our state and county that may uh, be hit with severe weather. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, cause us to uh, be wise about ways in which we can uh, protect ourselves, w- wise in the ways in which we can uh, look out for our, the needs of our neighbors, to have eyes to see who may uh, need a phone call uh, over the next few days just to check in, see how things are going. Lord, give us eyes to see those people and those needs. Give us hearts that are quick to serve others, during this time. And God, as we open your word tonight, we pray you would speak powerfully to us, to me, to everyone here. Lord, we need eyes to see what our future holds with you and hearts to believe and trust you, that you have our good in mind and that the future with you is amazing and that changes how we live in this life. So God, open your word to us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. Illuminate, illuminate us, illuminate the word to our souls, to our hearts, to our minds. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Hear the assurance of pardon from Psalm 32, verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. God forgives all those who come to him in humble reliance upon him as they confess their sins. We'll sing the next hymn while we take up our evening offering now. Our next hymn is hymn 529, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling. Let's sing this as we take up our evening offering. I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 12 for our evening message. Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 18. We are moving through our series entitled, Questioning Jesus, and each evening service in January, we're looking at a different question. Last week was the question of, do I need to be honest about taxes? Jesus is asked whether whether people should pay their taxes to Caesar or not. And in that question, he reveals all of our hearts. He shows our idolatry of money. And in that freedom that he brings, we lose our despair over taxes, and we freely give those things which our governments require of us because we know our Heavenly Father provides for his children. He is our, we are his possession. And so this week... The question is, will we be married in heaven? Somewhat of a strange question, somewhat of a question that many of us ask and think about and wonder about. The question's answer is yes and no, and we'll look at that more in just a moment. Um, Many people who I've talked to in my life, when they think about heaven, they are concerned Concerned that they're not going to have those things that they cherish here. That for somehow when they get to heaven, those things that they love here will be gone and they'll miss those things, whether they be uh, relationships or activities, whatever it might be. We think they'll be taken away or changed somehow. Some people will say, well, I just really want to experience this one thing before I go and see Jesus. As if That great thing that we want to do won't, in fact, be even better with Jesus. Our daughter Jane used to say when we were starting out with the children's catechism, she would cry when we talked about heaven because she didn't want to go to heaven and leave us. Or she didn't want us to go to heaven and leave her. Makes sense. So we're going to look at the question of marriage, which will lead us to the questions about heaven and that will lead us to questions about God himself and the abundant life that he gives us. So let's read Mark chapter 12, verse 18, starting at verse 18. <clears throat> this is God's word. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Te- Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child... The man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. "'Jesus said to them, "'Is this not the reason you are wrong, "'because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? "'For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, "'but are like angels in heaven. "'And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, "'in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, "'I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob?' He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray just for a moment. Again, God, we pray that you would anoint your word this evening and that you would speak clearly to us through me. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In each of the questions that we're looking at this month, we find that the people asking the questions aren't asking to actually know about the question. They're asking to trap Jesus, to get him to say something ridiculous or to say something that will make him lose credibility with the people around him. And like a good lawyer does, a lawyer never asks a question that they don't already know the answer to, or so lawyers tell me, or TV shows So these people are asking a question to Jesus, already knowing or thinking they know the answer to the question. And here, they're trying to make the resurrection look bad. They're trying to make the resurrection look unbelievable and ridiculous, because the Sadducees, as our passage says, believe there is no resurrection. So the Sadducees ask, if the resurrection were true, who would this woman be married to if she's had seven husbands. Now, the Sadducees are referring to an ancient practice called leveret marriage, and this is the practice where a man was obligated to marry a childless widow of his brother in order to preserve the family line, so to speak, to make sure that there were descendants of his brother's line. So their question touches on several different key truths about who God is, about the resurrection, and life in heaven. So we're going to look at two points. And the first is correcting our understanding of heaven. And the second is correcting our understanding of the power of God. So correcting our understanding of heaven. We're going to look at that so that we can long for heaven. So let's look at this first point. The Bible doesn't have a lot to tell us about what heaven is going to be like for God's people. Or what life will be like in our resurrected bodies without sin, in the new heavens and the new earth. And so when Jesus is speaking here, he is teaching new truth, which is interesting. He is speaking truth that hasn't been heard before to his audience Jesus says, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And so when many people hear this passage, they wonder, rightly so, if there's no marriage in heaven, what does that mean for my relationships here on earth? If I'm married, will I know my spouse in heaven? Will we still have a close relationship? Or will we all just know each other equally and there will be no special relationships, people we know more intimately? I know talking to people about this passage this past week, it has brought people to tears thinking that they might not have that special relationship with their child, for instance, or with their spouse. And other people might hear this passage and be, of course, grateful that they won't be married in heaven. But we see in marriage, throughout the Bible, marriage is supposed to point towards that ultimate marriage. It's a pointer. Randy Alcorn wrote a book on heaven. He is sort of the heaven expert among certain groups of people. He said this about marriage in heaven. He says, The Bible does not teach, does not teach, there will be no marriage in heaven. In fact, it makes it clear that there will be marriage in heaven. What it says is that there will be one marriage between Christ and his bride, and we'll all be part of it. Paul links human marriage to the higher reality it mirrors where we read in Ephesians chapter 5, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, Paul says, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So yes, there will be marriage in heaven, but not between people, and this is good news. This is good news. The world says that marriage is one of the ultimate relationships. It's the final stage of an intimate relationship here on earth. But one person named Drake Witchurch said that the purpose of marriage is not to replace heaven, but to prepare us for it. Not to replace heaven, but to prepare us for it. So what about our family relationships? Our our spouse, our children? We might think, I don't want to know everyone the same. I want to continue those relationships that I was given here on earth. And if you ask Randy Alcorn what he thinks, he'll tell you, I fully expect, and this is a quote from him, I fully expect that my wife will remain my closest friend besides Jesus himself. And I expect other family relationships not to be lost, but to be deepened and enriched. This is wonderful to hear. Of course, we need biblical foundations for this so that we can believe this to be true. So what are the biblical foundations for what he's saying? In Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, Whatever gain I had... I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And I was reading this uh, article from John Piper talking about heaven and our expectations of heaven and, and marriage and heaven and all of that. And he looked at this verse and he pointed out that Paul's not saying whatever loss I had, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And he says, All the best there is in this life is counted as loss for Paul for the sake of Christ because in eternity with Christ, the gains in this life will pale to the incredible riches of life with Christ. Paul then says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, God has prepared for those who love him. Again, John Piper will use this other passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 to reason out that those things that are wonderful here on earth won't be removed, they'll be deepened, they'll be enriched. He quotes 1 Corinthians 13 verse 9 through 12, where Paul says, We know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So when we look at these passages, those things that we have in part, are not just simply going to be removed or changed. They're going to be brought to their fullness, whether they're relationships that God has blessed us with or other things that some would say come under the good, true, and beautiful categories from God. They're not going to be removed, but deepened, made better, because we'll be united with the giver himself. Jonathan Edwards who I didn't know Heath was going to quote from so much this morning, but here's another Jonathan Edwards quote. He, he wrote a book called Heaven, a World of Love. And if you are not interested in heaven or life with Christ whatsoever, I really strongly encourage you to read this book. It's very short. But in this book, which to me has a weird title, but it makes sense once you read the book, Jonathan Edwards says that heaven is where love is in its purest form, because God is love. And God, of course, is there. I want to read this quote from him. I think it is incredible. He says this, All the truly great and good, all the pure and holy and excellent from this world— and it may be from every part of the universe, are constantly tending toward heaven. Every gem with which death rudely tears away from us here is a glorious jewel forever shining there. Every Christian friend that goes before us from this world is a ransom spirit waiting to welcome us in heaven. There will be the infant of days that we have lost below Through grace to be found above. There the Christian Father, the mother and wife and child and friend with whom we shall renew the holy fellowship of the saints, which was interrupted by death here, but shall be commenced again in the upper sanctuary, and then shall never end. He goes on to say that we will have the company of the patriarchs and the fathers and all those in the Old Testament and New Testament. He says the ones that the world did not see, the world was not worthy of. And then he says, finally, Above all, we shall enjoy and dwell with God the Father, our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ, whom we have loved with all our hearts on earth, who has always been to us the chief among ten thousands and altogether lovely, and with the Holy Ghost, our sanctifier and guide and comforter, and shall all be filled with all the fullness of the Godhead forever. That is just a sample of the wonderful imagery and ideas that Jonathan Edwards brings to our imagination of life with God in heaven, with no sin, with no evil. He goes on in that book to describe what relationships might look like when we're not in it for our own good. And it's so encouraging. You can let your imagination run wild with the glories of heaven. As we think about those things that God gives us here and that will be deepened and enriched It should lead us to worship. When we have a right theology or orthodoxy, as theologians say, it should lead to orthopraxy. It should lead to right practice, the right practice of worship. All theology's end is worship. So through the power of God, death is only a doorway to more life. And this is also good news for those who don't marry. For whatever reason, the pain of not being married may last all of this earthly life. And for some, it's hard not to resent God when you desire something godly and good and don't get it. And to those of us who are married, it's hard to put ourselves in the place of those who are not. But God makes it clear that non-married people are the full beneficiaries of the greatest eternal joys. So what is lacking on earth will be redeemed and even deepened in heaven, and you will not miss out on anything, even marriage. And God has this fantastic line in Isaiah 56 where God sees those who don't marry in this life and remain single, as the Bible refers to sometimes as eunuchs. He says this, In Isaiah 56, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So for each of us, whatever station we are in life, whether married or not, God sees you, he loves you, and he plans to bless you more than you can imagine. He's going to fulfill your deepest longings. You will not miss out on something when you go into life with Christ in heaven. So why does Jesus say there is no marriage in heaven? Uh, We can sum up what Jesus is teaching here specifically. We see Jesus talking about this subject in Luke chapter 20. There's three, three things we can say to sum up this point. In Luke, Jesus says marriage is end, ends because no one dies after the resurrection and in heaven. The procreating purpose of marriage is no longer necessary. So Jesus says that's one reason why There will be no marriage in heaven between people. Second, he says, or we learn from the Bible, that marriage ends because all of those signs and pleasures pointed to the ultimate marriage. Those things, the partial things that pass away when the perfect comes. And third, marriage ends because we all are placed on equal footing, as John Piper says, for enjoying the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. No one will lack in love and relationship and our special relationships deepen to a place we could never imagine. And we'll all be united to the bridegroom. And so it is good and right for us to correct or to refresh our understanding of life in heaven because our relationship with God depends on it. As we understand heaven and what life is going to look like, we are led to worship. It changes our life here and now. So as we correct our understanding of heaven, we move on to our second point, correcting our understanding of the power of God. If we go back to the original question that the Sadducees ask, who don't believe in the resurrection, they want to make Jesus look like a fool. And we learn in other places that the Sadducees only believed and only followed the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And Jesus knows this, of course. And so he answers their question with a source, that they would know and trust and understand. So he uses Exodus. He says in verse 24 of our passage, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And then in verse 26, And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead but of the living. You are quite wrong. Jesus is using of course their main source of understanding of God by going to Exodus to correct them. And this is like as one James Edwards said, Jesus telling Sadducees they're wrong about the Torah is like telling a banker on Wall Street that they don't know anything about money. Jesus is doing something here that is, would only be audacious for one of us, but not for Christ. He says if they'd know Scripture and the power of God, then they would see in him the fulfillment of Scripture and the power of God. Everything in the Old Testament Pointed to the Messiah, pointed to Jesus, to resurrection, to life. You can't know the scriptures without Jesus. He is the key that unlocks everything. In Luke 24, it says, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. All of scripture points to Christ. So if you know Jesus, you know and can understand God's word. If you trust Jesus, you will be united to the power of God through the Holy Spirit. This power of God that Jesus is referring to is that power that frees people from slavery to sin. The power to live for God instead of our own desires. The power to give up unhealthy and sinful habits and take up new habits that honor God. The power to bring healing and hope to the helpless, to the downtrodden. The power of God that is at work In and through Christ, applied to us by the Spirit. Jesus not only talks about the resurrection, he says he is the resurrection. Jesus is the life, he is the power of God unto salvation, which is where we get the magisterial passage from Paul where he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous the righteous, shall live by faith. The gospel is the power of God to everyone, to anyone, to all people, which means it's not just a ticket to heaven to believe in Jesus and then you go about your life. No, the gospel is the power of God that changes our life every single day. It's the power of God over our entire life, what we see all of life through. It's the power that draws us to humble reliance upon God, to repentance, to renewed faith to renounce the flesh, to put on Christ. It is the power of God to defeat death itself. Again, James Edwards says, the call of God establishes a relationship with God. And once a relationship with God is established, it bears the promise of God and cannot be ended, even by death. The relationship is the result of the promise and power of God that conquers the last enemy, death itself. Jesus, of course, in the Gospel of Mark and in history, will soon show the world the power of God in its fullest measure at the cross and at his resurrection. He will show the Sadducees, and everyone who's talking to him, and everyone who is around him, and the rest of the world, he will show that he is, in fact, the God of the living. He is the God of love, the God of all relationship. He is the God who conquers death itself. And so he invites you and me to come and receive the power of God, to receive the gospel by faith, for faith. Let's pray. Lord, as we think about heaven, as we think about scripture, as we think about your power, These are all things which draw our imagination. God, you are the giver of all good gifts. You are the God of relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternal relationship. And that will not cease. You pour out the gift of relationships to your people that will not stop with life with you, but will in fact be deepened and enriched God, would you bring us to this knowledge of the gospel, this good news that you are the conqueror of death itself, that nothing will stop our relationship with you and with those that you have called by faith. God, we love you, and we pray that those who do not know you, that do not know this hope in life after death with you, that they would come to trust you this evening, and that they would come to know the power of God in their life. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll finish up our service with hymn number 538, which is more about Jesus, what I know. Let's stand and sing hymn 538. Receive God's blessing as you go. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.